Welcome to The Missing Middle. I'm Kara Stern. And I'm Mike Moffat. In a previous episode, we were talking about property taxes in Toronto. And Mike, you were describing how you felt that there were several different groups of middle class people that we needed to kind of distinguish between to really understand the situation. So let's start there. What are those three different groups? Yeah, absolutely. So in that uh, Toronto episode, we were really distinguishing between renters and owners. And that's oftentimes how we think about uh, housing market that you have renters in one bucket and owners in another. But I actually think it's helpful to break them out into three uh, different groups. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep our renters bucket. But we can look at owner households uh, two ways that so we can look at households that own their house and have no mortgage or you know very little left on their mortgage. And then another bucket is households where they own the home, but they still have a fairly substantial mortgage. And we can break those families down basically a third, a third, a third. A third of families are renters. A third of families are homeowners with big mortgages, and a third are families with, with no mortgage. And why, why that distinction matters is that those groups are affected differently, uh, by, both by public policy, but also by broader economic phenomenon, whether they be interest rates or inflation or so on. So you can have you know three different individuals all making, or three different households all making roughly the same amount of money, but they can be affected very differently in the economy depending on which one of those three buckets they fall under. So then how do they kind of differ from each other when you have those diff- those different buckets of homeowners in terms of outcomes? Yeah, so they first of all we I think we need to distinguish what what those groups look like. So for the the homeowners uh without a mortgage, um you know, they tend to be older, which isn't surprising because they've had, you know, 25 30 years to 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 pay off their their mortgage. Um, they tend not to have kids living at home or at least, you know, fewer kids living at home. Um, and many of them are actually not particularly high income, uh, because a lot of them might be living off of fixed income. They're, they're retired people. You have a higher proportion of, uh, people living alone, uh, because the kids have moved out and, you know, oftentimes you have widowers or, or, or others. Whereas uh, the the ones with sizable mortgages, they tend to skew younger. But when I talk younger, you know, we're looking at you know forty to sixty year olds and and you know some folks in their thirties. Um, they, they they tend to be dual income earners, more likely to have uh, kids uh, living at home and, and so on. But they're affected very differently by policy. So, for instance. Uh, higher interest rates tend to help folks without mortgages, right? They don't have a mortgage. They don't have a lot of debt. But what they do have is a lot of savings, which earns interest income. Interest rates go up. Uh, those households are made better off. Uh, where, where, on the other hand, you've got uh, households who have sizable mortgages. They get hit hard by higher interest rates, particularly uh, as those mortgages renew or if they have a variable rate mortgage. So, you know, for instance, I 
put myself uh, and my family in that bucket that we got a, a mortgage in, in 2018 um, that renewed last summer and it renewed at a much higher interest rate, um, causing our monthly payments to go up over a thousand dollars a month. Uh, now we could we could absorb that, but not everybody can. So they're affected differently. They're also affected differently by inflation. Um, so, you know, you look at those folks on the fixed income, you know, they're harmed by, by, by inflation, right? That, uh, inflation tends to erode the value of their savings that, you know, their savings don't go as far when they're out buying groceries or whatever. For the other households, inflation is kind of a mixed bag because what inflation does is yes, it er erodes the value of their savings, but it also erodes the value of their debt. You know that uh, that that debt is now not uh, not as high in sort of real inflation adjusted terms. So that's why these distinctions matter uh, because households are are affected very very differently. And I think from a policy point of view that you know the the housing crisis became acute for more middle class people. Uh, when those interest rates started going up, because then it wasn't just renters who would like to be ho homeowners who were feeling this crisis. Then you got a lot of Gen Xers like me with renewing mortgages who, you know, have been homeowners in, in my case, like 20 years, all of a sudden really feeling this pinch in a, in a way that uh, we haven't in a long, long time. If you have people in those kinds of those different buckets, how do we then like when we're talking about middle class, how do we define the middle class? Because it seems like most of the time people try to use income and talk about, you know, it could be people, you take the median income and look at a certain percentage above it, a certain percentage below it, and call that the middle class. But it seems like to me, income is not a great way to define middle class. Yeah, so basically, I, I would argue that there's there's no one economic indicator um, that is useful for defining uh, defining the middle class, right? Because you because you could look at you could look at income, for instance. Well, you can have a household that you know has a three or four million dollar home and is living off of fixed income, and you you look at their tax return and go, okay, they've only they only earn twenty five thousand uh, dollars a year. Well, they're they're not they're not middle middle class. They're poor. Or you might have a thing, you know, you you, you have years where where uh, you know Warren Buffett and uh, Bill Gates have negative income, right? But we wouldn't call them poor, right? So you can have all of these income uh, fluctuations, um, or you could look at a group like, let's say, somebody in medical school who you know is going to have a, a lifetime where they are you know probably beyond middle class, uh, you know, higher than that. But they have no income and their net worth is actually negative, right? But we wouldn't say, oh, okay, well, they are therefore, you know, worse off economically. Them. Yeah, they're worse off economically than a homeless person, you know, a, a person experiencing or family experiencing homelessness. So there's always these counterexamples you can use. And it, it's why it's challenging to define this thing. So how I would more define it is, you know, who are the folks that over their lifetime are likely to be, uh, you know, somewhere in the, um, you know, not not in the top ten percent in their sort of lifetime wealth and income, but not let's say in the bottom thirty percent. That over their lifetime, they're they're likely to be kind of in in the high, in the middle or or slightly uh, slightly above the median. But we just have to remember that 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 you know lifetime income changes. That you know I could 
I've, you know, I've spent parts of, of my life, you know, earning decent income and, but I was also a grad student for way too long. And again, if I look at myself back then, I wouldn't say, oh, I wasn't middle class. I mean, I clearly, I clearly was, I clearly wasn't suffering. I just had a lack of income and a lack of wealth. Yeah, I think when I talk sometimes to like when I talk to boomers sometimes who don't who see some of the high salaries in tech industries and fields that a lot of uh, millennials and younger have gone into and they see these salaries and they're like, okay, well, they're doing great. Like, what's the problem here? And I'm like, but like when someone has such a, even, even if they have a rent controlled apartment, if they moved in 15 years ago versus yesterday, their income goes so much farther if they, if they have those lower expenses. So income seems like such a weird way to do it. And it's so interesting that so many people still use that as a method of determining what's middle class and how do we help how does the government, where should we put money into to help people, right? Yeah, well, and a lot of those folks probably wouldn't even be considered middle class. They, they, you know, they would be considered sort of high, high income earners. But you go, well, yeah, but all of that sort of income is, you know, getting getting eroded different ways. So I think that's why it's it's helpful to to look at these these buckets. Because you can look at you know the the renter bucket and you can say okay well you know they're they're renter so they're they're seeing their in uh, those incomes erode as, as rents go up and yes being in a in, in a rent controlled place helps uh you know helps them keep more of their income but it also kind of locks them into that place right it makes it going okay if if I if I ever try to move what that does is I'm going to be moving into a place where I'm a new tenant, and at least in Ontario, where I'm a new tenant, and you know the rent control doesn't doesn't apply um, because the rent is is based on the tenant, not the unit. Um, so you know if I want to keep paying this amount, I could never move. So so you get you know you you get the effect of these policies, um, you know, locking people in, and and this is why that distinction between renters and and owners matters. Because you don't have that if you're an owner and you've already paid off your mortgage. You know, you could go and sell that house and, and you, you want to move to the other side of the city and you could probably buy another house on the other end of the city for the same amount of money and net out. So so the, the lived experience is just going to be so much different between those groups. I remember when I had a one bedroom apartment and I was thinking that I was hoping to have a kid and I thought, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if I can do it in this one bedroom apartment. I looked at costs of moving into a two bedroom and it was like double at the time. Um, then the pandemic dropped them and I ended up moving into a two bedroom um, and it, my cost still went up like 60 or 70%, which is so huge. And when you add in the idea of having a kid, which has daycare costs associated with it, it's a really like you feel trapped almost. It's so hard to imagine. Like, how do you make it work? And you're, you, you do feel like you moved in at a certain time and that's it. Like you cannot move, especially if you moved in right before rents really started increasing in the last, I'd say seven years or so. It's, it's a really tough feeling. And I, I know so many people have struggled with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's how we should look at uh, these these issues. And I think this is how we should look at the, the, the problem of the missing middle uh, title of the podcast uh, is all around choice, right? That that in my mind, you know, what what success looks like for a middle class person or what we should be aspiring to have our middle class be able to do is have those choices, right? That they don't feel locked in 
to certain situations where they go, okay, I could never leave my apartment because if I do, any place I move to would be too expensive. Or I can't afford uh, to take that job in, in Oakville because I can't afford to live anywhere in commuting distance. So when we, when we start to think about things that way, and this is not a very economist way of doing things, like every bone in my training goes, okay, no, let's, let's get a, a quantitative metric of, of income or wealth. Uh, but I say, no, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's harder than that, that I, I think if we're trying to look at, um, the, the vibrancy of the middle class, I think we have to look at this in terms of choice, that if you are a, a 28 year old, uh, either individual or couple earning, you know, middle-class income, what does your choice set look like? What are, what are your options? And I think we, we need to find ways to broaden that option set. And I will say as somebody who, you know, was in, in that boat, you know, 20 years ago, you know, back when I was in 26, I think that option set was larger for me than it would be today if I were 26 and for sure. you know, having the same kind of income. And I think that's how we have to look at the problem. And I think, you know, the, these things where, you know, we, we hear from the, you know, the, the avocado toast boomers uh i think they miss that point that you can look at income you can look at wealth but things have gotten worse for people not because of that income or wealth or what have you but just that their option set is smaller than it would have been 20 years ago in a similar circumstance we know that the proportion of society in canada that is renting it's gone up is that a bad thing well it, it comes to that that question of choice uh so if it if it's based on the fact that people have just decided that they don't want to be involved in home ownership, and there's a lot of good reasons not to want to deal with home home ownership, uh, you might go, well, you know, if, if you own a home, and again, I'll use my, myself as a homeowner. Um, so I own a home in in Ottawa, and it's the you know my wife and I, and it is the by far the most valuable asset that that I own. Um, I am making a really large bet on the future of Ottawa real estate uh, by by owning this home. So a lot of people go, you know what? I'm not I'm not happy having a, a portfolio that that's that undiversified, right? I don't really want to make a big you know put pour all of my life savings uh, in into um, I- into the value of. Uh, real estate in Woodstock, Ontario, or wherever you happen to live. I want to have a more diversified portfolio and how I get there is renting. Or I just want to have more flexibility so I can pick up overnight and and move and take a job in Vancouver. If that's the type of decisions that people are making, that's fantastic, right? That, uh, that, That if people are going into renting, because that's where they want to be. But I think for too many folks that they're, they're renters, because there's no choice, right? Because they've been basically locked out of the home ownership market. And I think that's a huge problem. So, you know, that proportion of renters by itself, you know, I don't think you can really tell whether a high number is good or bad. It's what what is the underlying cause causing that number to, to rise or fall? That's what we have to look at. When you have those different buckets, we have the couple different kinds of owners, I'd say a couple different kinds of renters, um, depending on when they moved in and whether their unit is rent controlled today. But does that cover all all the people we can talk about in the middle class? 
Well, there's there's other groups that that we're missing. So no, this these three the this three bucket doesn't cover all adults. So there there are some that are missing. That uh, for instance, people in long term care homes aren't really renters or, or owners in their traditional sense. They're you know off doing doing something else uh, or supportive living and and things like that. But there's one really big group that we're not talking about in this uh, discussion. And it's because we're looking at things in a, a family-based, not an individual-based way. And the individuals that we're missing here are adult children living with their parents. So a little kind of history lesson. Back in, back in 2001, which was not that long ago, about 30% of 20 to 34-year-olds in Canada lived with a parent and about 50% lived with a spouse, a partner, kid, a child, or, you know, some combination of, of those things. And the remaining either, you know, lived alone, lived with a roommate, that kind of thing. Fast forward just 20 years later, just two decades later, and the percentage of adults living with a parent has risen. Uh, the percentage of adults between the ages of 20 and 34 has risen, went from 30% to 35%. And the proportion living with a spouse, partner, or child is down to 39%. So these things are basically converging here. We've had this kind of slow-moving glacial change in, uh, in, in Canada where, you know, you know, a um, 27-year-old, let's say, um, you know, 20 years ago would be far more likely to be married, to have kids, to uh, be on their own than live with a parent. And now it's kind of 50-50 that you have more of them living with a parent and fewer of them married or living with a partner or living with a child. And this trend doesn't seem to be slowing down, that every year the proportion living with their parents goes up. And the proportion, you know, uh, again, uh, being married, having a partner, having kids is declining. Do we know if anyone, if there's an increase in people wanting to do that, or is this just a housing crisis story? Well, that's that's the challenge here, right? And it again, again goes back to that sort of ownership market. Are, are, are people being pulled into that lifestyle because they, they want to be, or are they getting pushed into it due to economic necessity? And I do think there's some of both going on. So some of this may be just overall changes in, in culture. Like people are, are, are you know, less interested in getting married, less interested in doing certain things and, and more. It might be seen as more socially acceptable. Uh, to live with parents. So it actually might be due to cultural changes due to higher levels of immigration that depending on country, you know, it's uh, more likely for uh, people to, to move out at a later age in some cultures than, than other cultures. So there are a bunch of things going on, but we know it's economic and we know it's economic because of correlations that the places in Canada where home prices have gone up the fastest are the places where the proportion of ind adult individuals living with their parents has also gone up the fastest. And those places tend to be in Southern Ontario. Uh, and it's not just the GTA. One of the biggest ones is Windsor. We're seeing big increases in the Windsor area in both uh, real estate prices and 20 to 34 year olds living with their parents. So there's a there's a tight correlation there. And I'll suggest that it's high housing prices that are causing people to live with their parents and not people living with their parents that is causing high housing prices. 
I know that conservative leader uh, Pierre Polyev has talked about that. He's talked about the idea of, you know, the kids living in their parents' basements. I hear him use that line over and over, the 30-year-old living in his mom's basement. Do you think that any of the parties are doing anything or proposing anything that can actually help with that? Is it just a matter of housing supply or is there a way to, to, to target help to those people? Well, I think there's a few things. And I think over the last 20 years, you know, we've seen governments really try to have all kinds of incentive plans and savings plans to first time home buyers to try and, uh, you know, help on the demand side there. Uh, I think a lot of the solutions are, are more on the supply side of, of you know, being able to create um, create housing, particularly housing that is affordable. Uh, to 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 first time home buyers, but I think I think Polyev here has tapped into something that's real and that that that's happening, um, and discussed it in a way that I haven't seen from any other their politicians. Like it feels like it feels like he's he's really taken a look at this data, um, and said, okay, yeah, there's something real here um, that people are being pushed uh, in into living with their parents longer by economic circumstances. And I wouldn't suggest necessarily that his solution set solves the problem, but I think he's described the problem and diagnosed the problem better than than almost any politician I've seen in Canada. If there's no one definition of middle class that really covers this, or even talking about the different kinds of owners, different kinds of renters, you can't target a policy towards towards that whole group how does a a government kind of communicate that to the public well it it is i mean it is a challenge and and it's um one of the things that that makes public policy difficult is a lot of these policies that uh you you could do uh you know affect the entire real estate market so for instance building more student residences is one of actually the best things you could do to help first-time home buyers why? Well, you have more students living in residences that takes pressure off of the real estate market and makes it less attractive for investors to buy up single family homes and turn them into student rentals. But, you know, communicating that kind of chain of logic can be quite quite difficult. I mean, there's a maxim in, in politics that if you're explaining you're losing. So it is, you know, it is a challenge. Uh, you know, I, I'm a policy wonk and you never, you should never ask a policy wonk to do political communications. Uh, but, it, but as a policy wonk, I can at least recognize uh, the difficulty here that, that because housing is a system, because all of these things are interlinked with each other, um, that the, the sort of optimal policy is not really obvious to people how it would work and how it would make their lives better off. Thanks so much for watching and listening. Please like or subscribe or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks as always to our producer, Meredith Martin. We'll see you next time.